Welcome to another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm happy to be your new host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today I'm speaking with Ainsley Malone, RD, MS, LD, CNSD, who's talking to us today about goal-directed nutrition, a topic that she presented at the 41st Critical Care Congress. Ms. Malone is a nutrition support dietitian in the pharmacy department of Mount Carmel West Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. She has more than 25 years' experience in this field. I'm happy she's taken time to come here to discuss the latest advancements in nutritional therapy. Ainsley, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Guy, for the opportunity to participate in this podcast. You know, it seems over the years that nutrition has really come, um, you know, almost a quantum leap. It seems when, you know, 25 years ago when I was in medical school, the, the nutritional support of the patient was just that. It was considered something supportive. And over the last 20 years, we've learned often through our own mistakes that nutrition is pivotal in getting somebody better. And it's become as therapeutic in getting the right nutrition as it is choosing the right antibiotics for somebody who is suffering from something like septic shock. But it seems to be a constantly moving target nowadays. And I just when you think you understand something, it's constantly changing. So I was hoping that you could discuss or, or go back. Nutrition supports or nutritional therapy is still important, and, and we could really get it wrong and ha- cause harm to our patients still? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you just talked about, you know, nutrition support as a support. I think we're seeing with some of the newer techniques and such, such as pharmaconutrition, that we can really be more of a treatment in addition to support, which is, in my mind, is very exciting. What happens if we get it wrong? What are the complications to our medical or surgical patients if we underestimate or overestimate our type of feeds? Well, when we, when we talk about the, the possible complications of both underfeeding, I'm going to focus mainly on underfeeding because I think that's where we tend to um, see what our experiences are showing us. But when we talk about underfeeding, we're really talking about a negative energy balance. And, um, and, and this certainly can have ramifications both in the medical and surgical patients in the ICU. But in order to really answer this question a little bit better, I thought it would be good to kind of take a step back and look at the metabolic response to stress and critical illness. We know that energy requirements are increased, and this is due to the, the increase in the synthesis of some of our counter-regulatory hormones, such as cortisol, and, and the effects of these on metabolic cycles. What they do is they cause increase in protein breakdown, increase in in fat breakdown and, and breakdown of, of, of some of our muscle and liver carbohydrates. When our energy demands are not met by what we provide exogenously, the body has to use its own fuel. And in the critically ill patient, this is often derived from protein. Primarily, our, the critically ill patient doesn't really have the same ability to utilize their own fat reserves, and so they have to rely on something that's more readily available, such as protein. One, I think, commonly cited statistic, and I think this might have a real take-home message, is that the critically ill patient can lose up to about 250 grams of muscle protein per day. And when we translate that into muscle mass, that equates to about almost a 1,000 grams of muscle mass a day. And that's if we're not providing a good amount of protein. So clearly, in a patient who's underfed, they can really begin to break down a great deal of muscle mass. And this can have, obviously, function, a functional impact. And this is where I face you and hospital links today. So as I understand you, that the, the metabolism of a 
of if I were to begin to fast for 48 hours, my metabolism, how I would handle that fasting would be different than if I were critically ill or injured in fasting for 48 hours. Absolutely. The body has an elegant way to conserve its, its own fuel source. So when an individual, like a healthy individual who's not undergoing stress, reduces their intake of all nutrients, the body shifts over to a, a, a method of providing energy through our fat reserves through ketosis or, you know, ketone formation. But that is the uh, hormonal um, milieu, so to speak, does not allow that to occur in the critically ill patient. And so that, that opportunity is lost. And they, they do break down some body fat, but, but it's not nearly to the degree as someone who is not critically ill. So really the, the main source of, of potential energy um, is protein, unfortunately. And that's, that's really not the best way to go about obtaining our energy. And so as you said that if, you know, and in, in turn then, just to summarize, if I'm losing weight in a catabolic stress phase postoperative or critically ill, if I lose two pounds in that circumstance, that two pounds is characteristically different than if I'm losing two, fa- two pounds by dieting. Right, correct. You're going to, the critically ill patient is more apt more apt of that is, or more more of that is going to be muscle. I'm preferentially using protein or amino acids, mm-hmm. and I store those amino acids where? Protein is not really stored. We don't really call protein storage of protein, but it is, you know, in, housed in our muscle mass, in our visceral organs, essentially. So I'm breaking down perfectly good muscle in order to fuel right. gluconeogenesis. Okay, well, how should I go about? I mean, how, how would you recommend that we should determine what somebody's protein and calorie needs are in, in the modern intensive care unit? Well, there are several different methods. Um, the most accurate is by measuring an individual's, or indirectly measuring, I should say, their resting energy expenditure with an indirect calorimeter. And that method really just captures oxygen consumption and CO2 production and through a, a nice equation equates it to resting energy expenditure. There are, unfortunately, some clinical scenarios that don't allow that to be a valid uh, measurement. And in addition, it's a rather expensive piece of equipment and requires maintenance and, and calibration. So most, most clinicians and most institutions will use a predictive equation. And predictive equations are uh, created, I should say, from uh, comparisons to indirect calorimetry measurements. So you're using the, the resting energy expenditure as measured through indirect calorimetry as the basis to create a predictive equation with the thought that it would predict resting energy expenditure. And over the years, there have been a, a myriad of equations, and, and some certainly are less accurate than others. I would say one of the more recent recently developed equations is termed the Penn State equation, and it is designed to include the variables that form the basis of energy expenditure, such as weight, um, height, age, and sex. But then it also includes two other parameters, um, minute ventilation and temperature. And as, as critical care specialists, you recognize the role that minute ventilation has in terms of work of breathing and that temperature is certainly going to increase energy expenditure. So these two variables are, I think, more reflective of someone in an ICU versus our previous um, predictive equations. This has an accuracy that actually was most recently evaluated to be about 74% in the critically ill patients. So compared to every other equation that's been um, assessed in terms of accuracy, that has the highest degree of accuracy. 
Another um, option, and, and there are some clinicians that, that do this, is to really use a simple calorie per kilogram method. And while that, I agree that that's simple and when you're trying to, to design a nutrition support regimen quickly, that's a, certainly something to do. But there's such a wide variation when you when that has been looked at in terms of validating with indirect calorimetry. There's, there's a wide um, standard deviation in terms of um, how accurate has, it has been. So if you use that on an ongoing basis, the likelihood of, of underfeeding and overfeeding is certainly greater if you use this just this simple method. So while I think it's good to start with, it might be it certainly would be better to maybe fine tune a little bit more in terms of energy with a predictive equation. Now in terms of protein, it's unfortunate that it, it's difficult to really assess true protein requirements because we don't have you know a research lab in our institution that can really do some of the more elegant work that is required to assess protein requirements. Some of the early work um, done by critical care specialists really have documented that nitrogen loss and protein loss is positively correlated with the severity of illness. And so this is why when you look at reference text and you see what recommendations are made by guidelines and experts, you'll see a range of 1.5 to 2 grams of protein per kilo. And this is certainly higher than what was in place when I was first in my years of practice. We weren't feeding as aggressively from a protein perspective. Um, and that certainly has increased over the years. There has been one study, though, that's looked at patients undergoing continuous renal replacement therapy. And it has been suggested by that study that patients receive from two to two and a half grams of protein per kilogram, mainly because of the loss of protein through the CRRT process. But I would say that those are those are probably the primary methods to assess both energy and protein requirements. What's the best way nowadays to determine nitrogen balance, and particularly in these complex surgical patients that, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't have people in ICUs with these large open abdomens and these large wounds. Yeah, it's, you know, you can measure, I, we do nitrogen balance on, not on every patient. I can remember we used to do that years ago, but it was fraught with, with challenge. And and we might not even make a change in what we were doing. And that's really what, you, we do nitrogen balance studies when we want to assess where we are and, and are we providing enough. And so we have we do uh, perform nitrogen balance studies in those who who do have wounds, and you can um, you can send a sample of, of wound drainage if it's significant to the lab, and they can measure nitrogen content of that. Um, and we also certainly do urea nitrogen to get to capture what's in the urine. But I think it's important to recognize that when a patient is critically ill, we can't we can't put them in positive nitrogen balance mainly because the hormonal state is not favorable for that. So our goal is to really minimize the nitrogen loss so that we don't see that, we don't have that large amount of muscle protein being broken down. So what we try to do is minimize the negative balance. And, and we are able to do that. And sometimes we've had to provide two to two and a half grams of protein per kilogram in order to, to achieve maybe a negative two or a negative three nitrogen balance knowing that if we weren't doing that, we might be negative 10, negative 15, which clearly would be associated with a greater uh, muscle loss. Are there any other activities or, you know, the use of ambulation or, or, or therapy to perhaps decrease the, the, the catabolic effect uh, of stress? I think that's certainly something that, that is in the, on the horizon, and I, I think it's an exciting area because we all know that in order to minimize loss and or 
increase the opportunity for synthesis, you need, you know, you need exercise. Um, just being being in a bed and not doing much with your muscles is certainly going to increase protein loss and, and nitrogen loss. And, and I think one exciting area that uh, we're certainly, hopefully in the years ahead, going to be able to see maybe the ability to measure, you know, muscle or protein compartments through things such as CT scanning, for example, and to see what kind of loss of muscle we have in an, in an ICU patient. And as we see more exercise being done, especially early on in an ICU course, we can hopefully improve some of that, you know, minimize some of that loss, which long-term or has major long-term effects. I'm intrigued that, you know, we, we've been kicking around the concept of ambulating mechanically ventilated patients. Yes. And I think people are always focused on the issue of the mechanical ventilator part of that and how good it is for their lungs and their skin. But I think people have overlooked the fact that this is huge in regards to their metabolic profile and decreasing yes. metabolism and maybe even accelerating, you know, anabolism and the building up of protein. Do you use any pharmacological adjuncts in your management of these critically ill patients? Well, we um, we we do use um, in our patients with ARDS and acute lung injury, we do use a formulation that has fish oil and barrage oil and antioxidants. Um, we haven't really done much. We really haven't added pharmaconutrients in the term in terms of antioxidants. I think we're waiting for the re- results of the Redox trial. Um, as far as enterylglutamine, um, as I'm actually involved with some evidence analysis work through the Academy for Nutrition and Dietetics, and we just recently completed some evidence analysis work with enterylglutamine, and it didn't really show a benefit in terms of um, outcomes and mortality, reduced infectious complications in the parenterally fed patient or the individual that can receive intravenous nutrition. IV glutamine certainly has benefits in terms of reduction in infectious complications, but unfortunately, we don't have a readily available source yet. There are some centers that can provide IV glutamine, but it does require a large volume in order to achieve the dose that's recommended, and that's not always feasible in a critically ill patient with all the other drips and things. So those are exciting things to me on the horizon um, that we will have, you know, in our in our armamentarium, so to speak, of what we can provide for our critically ill patients. When should we be starting two feeds? I mean, somebody comes in, they're, they're, they're in septic shock or they're on vasopressors. Should we wait? Should we start feeds at a low rate and try to get the target as quickly as we can? Or how potentially should we modify that? But it seemed like in the old days, we would wait for days and days and start them on TPN and wait till they were off pressors and the idea of potentially harming the bowel or even causing some sort of ischemic injury to the intestine. Those are all excellent questions. So I'll, I'll start with the, the, the Aspen SCCM guidelines that recommend, you know, that in the hemodynamically stable patient, we should be starting enteral nutrition within 48 hours. And this is primarily generated from the rather large body of evidence that shows that patients who are enterally fed within this time period have better outcomes. They have reduced length of stay, they have reduced complications, reduced infectious complications, and they just do overall do better. There are some some studies that support um, that the earlier you feed, the better GI function, the patient will have better GI function. Some of the studies that have compared early, and that's under 48 hours with later, anywhere from 72 to 96 hours, those folks end up having more issues with tolerance of their enteral nutrition. And so 
in my mind, there's certainly a, a window of opportunity, so to speak, that by starting within that 48-hour period, you're going to have a better likelihood of better tolerance and therefore the ability to achieve, uh, get closer to goal intakes. One of the other questions that we asked when we did this evidence analysis for the academy is we looked at what threshold is associated, what threshold of enteral intake is associated with improved outcomes within the first week. And looking at the studies, it appears that about a 60% threshold. So if you can achieve about 60% of some of what we estimate an individual to require in terms of energy and protein, the better likelihood we will have of having uh, reduced complications. And certainly there are the studies that support that aren't the strongest because it, it is hard to design a study to test that particular question. But but in looking at what is out there, it does show that that, that kind of threshold um, would be good to achieve. Now, in terms of the question regarding... Well, let me know, let me just restate oh, that because I think okay. that's a really great point. So you're saying that over the first week of, of critical illness, if I get 60% of my caloric targets into my patient, mm-hmm. um, that's going to have a positive... That's associated with the positive um, outcome, yes. And then as I try to get above that 60% threshold, clearly then I'm looking at an increased rate of complications being what aspiration. Well, I don't, I don't know. That wasn't how we asked the question, so I can't, I can't specifically say that. You know, I, I think that when we talk about enteral nutrition, it's hard to really give 100% of an individual's estimated energy requirements enterally. It's really, I mean, it's, it's not that often that we achieve that. So if we do, do that, it's generally because we're providing other sources of nutrients like propofol, maybe some IV dextrose and things like that. And so I don't, I think the studies that have shown that reaching a higher target level or being closer to 100% of estimated targets hasn't, those studies have been more observational and I think there have been some confounders. So I'm not, I'm not really convinced that by doing that you're going to be harming your patient. But I think Knowing that if we can achieve 60%, that's probably a more realistic approach in terms of or or something that we're more able to achieve. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, and and how would you define, you know, the definition of how we tolerate two feeds is is beginning more liberal over the past years. I mean, how oh, yes. do you consider what? How is someone tolerating their two feeds? Well, I guess I I really advocate looking at the entire. Uh, picture that the patient is demonstrating and not just a single parameter, which I think what you're alluding to is what's been done over the years, um, and specifically looking at gastric residual volume. Many clinicians over the years have, have turned off two feedings when residual volumes are twice the uh, feeding rate, 250 mLs, a, a threshold that in my mind is not really um, based in you know common sense or has any physiologic basis to it. And there have been a number of of researchers that have looked at that um, and some that have really identified that that parameter in of itself is not a measure of gastric function. And so looking at the entire picture is really is really the most important way to assess tolerance. Looking at residual volume coupled with abdominal exam. Is the abdomen descended? If it is descended, is it has there been a change in distension? Is there firmness? Is there, you know... Um, guarding or rebound, all the things that you would evaluate from a, a, an abdomen per, uh, perspective. Has there been a change in other aspects of their clinical picture? Have they gone from having hypoactive bowel sounds to no bowel sounds and no ostomy output? Just all of those things together 
would be more concerning than just looking at a residual volume. And so I think as clinicians, we need to educate our, our clinicians about looking at things from a, you know, a big picture standpoint and not just one particular parameter. Well, I, I like the fact that you pointed on that residual. It's always interesting to talk to our residents that a can of Diet Coke is about 350 milliliters. Yeah. And so stopping at 250. So so what are you doing in your practice? I mean, are you checking residuals at all? I know there are some units that just keep feeding. Yeah, we check them, but our threshold is, is um, 500 ml. And if an individual has a residual volume that's under 500 ml, in the absence of any of those signs of intolerance that I mentioned, if everything else is normal, then the feeding continues. If, on the other hand, if a residual volume is 250 and the patient has had emesis or they've had a change in their abdominal exam, then that would be alerting to the clinician and they will hold the feeding. If the, if the residual volume is 550 or 600, that's a, pause, that's a cause for pause and, and we will hold the feeding for an, an hour and recheck. So it's really, again, looking at the entire picture, but that is our threshold. And uh, we changed our policy a couple of years ago, and it's it's taken a little while to um, take hold. But it really, I mean, our our clinicians are following it for the most part. Good. So, do you think that you know by trying to obviously get that hundred percent goal, we may actually be causing harm to our patients? I don't know that. I think if 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 we are enterally feeding, I'm not I'm not sure of that. If we are parenterally feeding our patients, that might be um, there might be cause for for concern in the patient that's very critically ill and still in their inflammatory phase, you know, that the first, I guess, oh, you know, three to five to seven days because they're in a metabolic state that may not best utilize the nutrients that we're providing, specifically the dextrose and, and, and the lipid. Whereas when they're in their more convalescent phase or, you know, they're approaching being weaned from the ventilator or they're weaned from the ventilator and, and they're really moving into their anabolic phase, I think that's where achieving 100% of caloric requirements, specifically parenterally, just because I think the way we handle our nutrients is, is certainly a bit different um, when we provide intravenous versus um, enteral. You remember the, you know, how enteral nutrients are digested and absorbed. That's certainly a different process than what is what occurs when patients get their carbohydrates through an intravenous route. Obviously, digestion and absorption slows the release, you know, of, of glucose within the system um, compared to when it just, when it is provided intravenously, it goes right into the bloodstream. The other, and I think that certainly explained, was one explanation why there is a difference in terms of response. Patients receiving parental nutrition are more apt, much more apt to be hyperglycemic, and that certainly is one of the reasons. Another um, reason that's been recently postulated is the um, concept of incretins, which are are hormones that are secreted by the GI tract in response to enteral nutrition. So when enteral nutrients um, reach the GI tract, these incretins are synthesized and released, and they actually cause an, a um, synthesis of insulin by the beta cells. So it's before glucose is even released um, into the bloodstream after it goes through the you know circulation of the liver. So you know, to me, that's an interesting concept. So there's clearly two different mechanisms that might certainly show us why enterally fed carbohydrate is, is handled differently than parenterally fed. 
you know, somebody loses 10 pounds of lean muscle mass, how long does it take to get that back? And what are the activities or medications or dietary things that they can do to get their aerobic capacity back and lean muscle mass to basically get back to their activities of daily living? Well, I think that one of the key things is to maintain the vigilance with nutrition once someone's out of the ICU. And I know in my own institution, we're, we're not good at this. We we stop tube feedings when someone's extubated, and then we start them on diet, and they don't eat. And they don't eat protein. There's a, there was a nice study done by some dietitians in Chicago a couple of years ago that showed within the first week after transfer out of the ICU, patients are consuming less than less than 50% of their protein requirements and energy requirements. And that, you know, that, and that's really when patients are in their more anabolic phase and where they may even need higher nutrients than when they were in the ICU, which is, you know, hard to believe. But, I mean, I think that just goes to how things change metabolically so quickly. But I think that we need to do better when we're in the hospital. And as clinicians, we need to recognize when our patients aren't eating and try to intervene much more quickly than letting them wait and go for another two weeks without eating much and being aggressive with oral supplements, with the need for starting enteral nutrition if that's necessary in order to achieve nutrient intakes and being cognizant of, of um, stopping meals for, you know, tests. Not that the, that certainly needs to be done, but just recognizing when nutrients nutrient intake is severely compromised and intervening a lot sooner. Um, there are some oral supplements that are, have been introduced in many hospitals that have a protein that allows greater protein synthesis. And so, and, the, and actually in Europe, there are quite a few um, studies because in Europe, oral supplements are used a bit more differently because many countries reimburse, provide, their governments provide reimbursement for them. So they're used a great deal. And many studies show that even two cans of an oral supplement um, with a, a good amount of protein can impact um, an individual's ability to to tolerate their therapies and improve their overall course as they try to recover. So protein intake, nutrient intake in general, and just being vigilant about assuring adequate intake. I think we have, we have a long way to go in this realm, and it's going to take a lot of, um, I think, almost a systems approach to evaluating intakes and patients and what things can be built into systems of providing nutrition within a, an individual hospital. The clinical dilemma that we face a, a great deal is what do we do with somebody who's on vasopressor therapy with something like norepinephrine? Is it contraindicated to give someone enteral feeds while they're on norepinephrine or while they're on neuromuscular paralysis or the patient who has an open abdomen? Well, I, I think the bottom line is that you want to, you know, you, you don't want to do harm, but you know, and you want the patient to be fully resuscitated. And and in my mind, and I think what has been shown in the literature is that if your patient is still requiring fluid resuscitation and escalating either number of agents or doses of those agents, that they're still clearly still being resuscitated. And so that is not the time to proceed. But if they are on a vasopressive agent, but their press, their mean pressures are stable, or they're improving, because and you're escalating down on your dose or doses, um, that certainly is is, a re, is is the time to begin feeding, and you can do that. Uh, there are a couple of, one study in particular actually evaluated patients who were being um, supported with 
either one or two vasopressive agents. Their pressures were greater, mean pressures were greater than or equal to 65, and they were able to tolerate um, enteral feeding initiation as well as um, advancement without any um, adverse sequelae related to, you know, deterioration clinically or gut ischemia. So, and I think that particularly showed that you can be successful in, in feed patients who are on vasopressive agents. In terms of neuromuscular blockade, um, also you can feed patients. The, the old myth that, you know, it, you know, negates peristalsis within the GI tract, it, it does not. It, it requires more vigilance so that you can assess, that you need to assess tolerance frequently, but it, you can clearly feed the patient who's on this type of agent. Sometimes feeding the small bowel may be a better choice because peristalsis is um, more intact of the three parts of the GI tract. Um, but we've had great success with feeding patients on, on those types of agents. And then as far as the open abdomen, I think that is certainly a more questionable area. You can, we can, I've, we fed enterally, but sometimes if you have to take patients back to the OR frequently or if they develop an enteroatmospheric fistula, then you're certainly in need to provide some parental nutrition. And if the patient is malnourished upon admission, then you may want to start with parenteral with the caveat of getting, you know, jejunal access and starting some trophic feeds and then advancing as you're able to. What about the prone patient? The prone patient you can certainly feed enterally. I, I, I would recommend, and I know we do when we prone our patients in our facility, we obtain small bowel access because it, it's just more, much more easy to provide nutrients when your patient's being fed in the small bowel. Well, we've been discussing uh, basically challenges in nutritional therapy with Ainsley Malone, a registered dietitian and nutritional support dietitian in the Department of Pharmacy at uh, Mount Carmel West in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Ms. Malone uh, gave a presentation at the 41st Care Congress in Houston, Texas to thank her for joining us today on Eye Critical Care. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. You can find the latest episodes and archives at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare. I'd like to mention that you can now find the SCCM Podcast on Stitcher and Beyond Pod, as well as on iTunes. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. He is an associate professor of surgery and director of the Regional Burn Center and Acute Operative Services at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. At Vanderbilt, he co-directs a medical student immersion course on critical care physiology, a program he helped develop. He also established a sustainment training program for U.S. combat medics. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.